The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father God, we count ourselves as a blessed people because you have not only saved us, but that you continue even now to dwell with us and in us through your Spirit. Father, that your Son has upheld his promise that he would not leave us alone, he would not leave us as orphans, that he would be with us surely even into the end of the age. And so we are a blessed people indeed. That we're not left to try and figure out this world on our own. We're not left to try and finish this race on our own. But that, Father, even now, in the middle of the chaos and the frustration and the suffering, you're here. You're working. You're preserving. That you're holding fast to us to the very end. So, Father, as we desire to come to your word and see this truth here, pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to behold it. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it's a bit of a bittersweet moment for me this morning. Is after 27 weeks, I think, we have come to our final time here in this most magnificent sentence in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. This great doxology, this word of praise, this eulogitas. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of you just about have it memorized by now. Week after week, you've gotten used to the rhythm and, and the cadence of it all. And so as we stand to our feet here in a moment and we, we return to this one last time, I'm going to ask you to read it with me. Like us all as one to read this text together. And I'm going to try to read it my normal cadence. That's a problem I have. Whenever I ask you to read something with me, all of a sudden I go into robot mode and I read way slower than anyone ever reads. I'm going to read it at my pace and ask you to read it at my pace with me. We'll read this text together, shall we? Go ahead and stand to your feet, please. I remind you that what we read are not just words upon a page, but this is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient Word of God. Are we ready? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Father God, this is your word. It transforms lives. In the hands of your spirit, you are continually making us into a holy, a particular, a blessed people. So Father, we pray that you would do your work now. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You can't help but feel like Paul's just piling on as we work through that text. As I've told you often during our time together, it feels as though he is just grasping and reaching and stretching the English language almost beyond its greatest bounds. Just trying to unfold for us that which God has revealed to him for our sake. As I told you when we first began this book, it it seems as though Paul has been swept up into the heavenly places. The veil has been pulled back and he's been revealed, had things revealed to him that are just too great for our minds to fully comprehend. And so he's just continually pounding at it from every angle possible, piling blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Blessings of election, predestination and adoption and redemption Forgiveness in Christ Jesus, an inheritance. No one would believe such a thing if it wasn't true. No one would believe such a thing if God had not so clearly revealed it to us in his word. And we find it all coming together in this one great crescendo. The realization that God has not only planned and accomplished a purpose, but that we're in that purpose. That his purpose is that in all things, at all times, he is uniting us as one working at every last moment. How many times have I told you over these weeks, there's no meaningless moments. There's no insignificant things. That in all of these things, God is working for his glory and for our good. We came together last week and we considered together, but when does this purpose intersect our life? What are the means that God uses to accomplish this end? Because the scripture tells us very clearly that while this is a thing that God has predestined and planned before the foundation of the world, that there is a time, there was a time when we were outside of that plan. We were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, without God and without hope in the world. And so something must happen. And we considered together last week, what is a thing that must happen? How does God come and by his spirit apply to us that which the Father has planned and the Son has accomplished. Now this becomes very personal for us, doesn't it? Because now we're down at ground level. We're talking about the level of our experience. For most of us, the very first awareness we had that God was doing anything in our lives. That moment in which, as he said in verse 12, they were the first to hope in Christ. They, I believe, meaning those Jewish people, those to whom Christ came, Salvation first to the Jew and then to the Greek. 
And then with verse 13, he went on to say, and you also, us, that's most of us. I don't know that we have any believing Jewish people, people from Jewish heritage here in our congregation, not that I'm aware of. So this is us. You also, you Gentiles, you also have a hope in this, a place in this inheritance that is being kept for us even now in heaven where it will not be defiled, where it will not fade, where it will not rust, where no one can come and snatch it away. You also, when? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. And you believed in him. If you work through this sentence, and you do some of what I called you to do in those early weeks, as I was telling you, just, just how, do we, how do we study the Bible? How do we study Scripture? And as you start to look for patterns that emerge, there's some things that you can't help but catch as you read through it, even the first time, that God has a tremendous urgency that he might call us to be to the praise of his glory. That that's his ultimate purpose in all this, is that God's name would be praised. But something that comes even more often than that, a term that repeats over and over and over again throughout this sentence, is that phrase, in him, or in Christ, or through Christ Jesus, or in the beloved. You can't help but walk away from this sentence with the sense that all the good things that God has for us, they are found only in Christ. That Christ isn't just some delivery mechanism. He's not just the messenger for the Father that is in the realm of Christ. It's only as we find ourselves in him that we can have any assurance that any of these things would be ours. You must be in Christ. And how does a man come to be in Christ? How do you find yourself united and joined to the beloved? What well, is in this, in faith. Turning from your sin and trusting in him. So we spent quite a bit of time last week talking about not just the substance of the gospel, the gospel message of salvation, but in addition to this, what is true saving faith? What does it mean to really believe in Christ Jesus as Lord? This is the way that we are joined to him. This only happens, all of God's promises, all of God's plans, all that Christ Jesus accomplished on the cross, it's of no use to you until you come to believe. And God won't do the believing for you. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, beloved, it was you who believed. And this is where things can get a little bit confusing for us at times. Because we've talked so much, and that's where Paul has taken us, so much about this monergistic work, the singular work of God in planning and accomplishing our salvation. It can be tempting then to come to the end of that and go, well, where do we fit into any of this then? Are we just robots? Has God just picked us up and put us on a conveyor belt that leads us to heaven? What role do we play? Well, beloved, it's in this. This is why you're here. This is what you do. You believe in him. It was Jesus who said that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore repent and believe in the gospel. It was the same Paul who wrote this magnificent sentence to us that in Romans 10, 13 said that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You remember that Jesus was there and he was speaking to men who would no longer believe, who would not walk with him in faith because his message had gotten too hard. He said there in John 6, 37, that all who the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast him out. Beloved, that's you. 
You are there right in the middle of this whole thing. It is you who must believe. It is our job to go out and preach this gospel to the world. We call them to believe. We call them to repent. We give them assurance that if you will repent and you will believe, all of this is yours, and he will no way cast you out. He will no way turn you away. Beyond this, we must endure. All of these promises that Christ has made to us, all of these promises that Paul is unveiling for us, they're only ours if we endure to the end. Scripture also tells us this, that we must press on. We must persist in the faith. We must not fall away during suffering. We must continue on. Paul, in this parallel text to this, these verses that we've been reading, Colossians 1.23, he says that it is God's purpose for us that he would present us to himself as holy and blameless if God will present us to himself holy and blameless if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, if we're not careful, this can cause us to become very anxious then. We've just spent 27 weeks laying out the promises of God, and we've used terms like we have received an inheritance. We've talked about ourselves as being already now seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. I've called you to rejoice in the middle of suffering knowing that these gifts are yours, as securely in your hands as if you could see them here and now. And now we come back and say, and yet you must endure. It is you who must believe. You must press on. You must finish the race. You must continue until your very dying breath. Well, what hope then is there in this? Haven't I just presented something only to rip the carpet out from underneath you? As I asked you last week, how will I know that I will wake up tomorrow still Christian? How do I know that I'm going to continue to believe tomorrow? Now, beloved, if your answer for this is, well, because I've always believed, that's some shaky ground. If your answer is because I so love Jesus, my heart is so drawn to him, and I am, I am so confident in my ability to cling fast to faith that I know that I will never fall away, very, very shaky ground. And the reality is that God wants you to know this. God wants you to know for sure that you are his. God wants you to know for sure that you will endure, that you will continue, that these promises that he has given you, that they will be waiting for you there in the very end. And he knows how very hard and cruel this world can be. It occurred to me, I talked about this at our last membership, last members, um, what do we call that thing? Members class, membership class. How often scripture calls us to endure. The very use of that word indicates that this is something that's going to be hard. Never once has anyone come to me and said, Josh, today you're going to have to endure a nap. You're going to have to endure a delicious meal. You have to endure a hug from someone that you love. Endurance indicates pain and toil and great suffering at times. God knows the weight of that. Christ Jesus knows the weight of that, knows the weight of temptation. He knows what it's like to live in a world surrounded by sin and sinners. He knows how weak our substance is, how, how the devil prowls looking for one that he can devour. But God wants you to know. He wants you to be able to know because as we get closer to our final day, for some of us it's 60, 80, I don't know how many years. For some of us it's closer than that. We don't know when that day will come. But 
I, I think about this as we stand at the bedside of a dying saint, one who's devoted their lives to following Jesus Christ. As you get to those final moments, one of the things that I say, any of you that ever call me, you call me to come to your home, and it's, or your, your spouse calls me to come to your home, and it appears as though you're getting close to the end. It appears as though God is going to be calling you home soon. One of the things that I will say to you, I've said it to every, every saint I've stood by their bed, I will lean down and I will tell you, be brave. Finish well. Endure. I don't know if you can hear me then. So what confidence can we have? They can't hear the voice of the preacher. What confidence can we have as their mind is fading away and their bodies are shutting down? What confidence can we have that they will not then at the very end abandon the race? What confidence can we have that there at the very end the devil won't see his end, jump in, snatch that faith away, and leave you with nothing? God wants us to know. And that is the purpose of this morning's text. He wants you to be able to have that confidence, not just for those you love, but for yourself. He doesn't want you to be wandering around in this earth scared, constantly worried that you're going to lose that thing which he has promised to you. He doesn't want you walking on your tiptoes, constantly worried that you're going to fall off the track of faith. He wants you to know. He wants you to know that you have obtained this inheritance. And so what we do this morning, what we've been doing for all these 27 weeks that came before, this wasn't just an intellectual exercise. We were fighting for assurance. We were fighting for confidence. Because I can tell you that weak theology is oftentimes the enemy of assurance. Now don't get me, don't get me wrong. There are plenty of people whose understanding of the gospel is a very surface understanding. Christ Jesus is Lord. He has said so. He died. He rose again. If I believe in him, eternal life is mine. And they are walking around with absolute assurance. I'm not telling you that assurance is the ground. That, I'm not telling you that the depth of your theology is the grounding for your assurance. There are some people that are just optimists by nature. You know those people. They just always walk around assuring Christ Jesus is mine. I'm jealous for those people. Truly, I am. But for the rest of us, the more we grow in our theology, the more we grow in our understanding, the less room we give the devil to pounce. You've met those people. They, they seem to hold on to the, their theology like it's a house of cards. They can't let anybody get within five miles of it because they're worried you're going to breathe wrong and the whole thing's going to come tumbling down. I don't think that's the picture of what God wants for his people. He wants us to be the kind of people that says, come on in and make yourself at home. Look in the closets. Look through the junk drawer. Bump into the walls. This thing is rock solid because it's grounded on the word of God. It will not come crashing down. That there's blessing that comes as we grow in our understanding of what God is doing in our salvation. And you'll see evidence of this in the fact that so much of what Jesus says, so much of the deep doctrinal statements that we get from Jesus, they are accompanied by some of the most uplifting and encouraging assurances. That oftentimes you see hand in hand these times when God wants to assure his people, when he wants us to give confidence that we will not fall away from the faith that we will endure to the end, that they are going hand in hand with some of these things that are incredibly difficult for our finite minds to understand. I take you to John 10. Turn there with me. John 10, 25. I'd ask you to go and read the entire 10th chapter of John's gospel this evening or this afternoon if you have time. There is some real meat on that, on that bone. But you remember that here some men have come, some Jewish men have come, and they are yet again confronting Jesus, and they're asking him, Jesus, just tell us plainly, 
if you're the Christ? Just shoot us straight. Are you the Christ? He says this in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So he's saying, how have I told you? I've done these works. I've done these works in my Father's name, and these works, they bear witness that I am the Christ. He goes on in verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So the context of this reading, as you work through it, is you'll constantly see three different times in verse 11, verse 14, verse 17, Jesus saying that he has come to lay down his life for the sheep. That's the context. I am laid down my life. No one is taking it from me. I lay it down, and I will take it up again. I am giving my life for the sake of the sheep. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. There you are. That's what we talked about last week. That those who are his, they will hear his voice and they will follow. They will hear his voice and they will go. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Here it is. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father am one. Love what Jesus wants you to see here is the same thing that Paul has been showing us here in Ephesians 1, the picture of the triune God working in perfect unity for your salvation. That you don't have the Father doing one thing, the Son doing another thing, and the Holy Spirit coming along and doing his own thing. You have a perfect unity of purpose. Father, Son, Holy Spirit working to ensure that his children will be saved and will stay saved. It is not you who cling to Christ, that it is Christ who clings to you. I'll often say whenever people struggle with the doctrines of how salvation works, the doctrines of grace, I'll often ask them, how good a job do you do keeping up with your keys? How much less could you keep up with your own salvation? How fickle are your emotions? How faithless can be your faith? And we see the incredible encouragement that comes in knowing that it is God who holds to us. Will it at times feel as though we're the ones holding fast to him? Absolutely. I think about our children. You, you know when your babies go from that point of being just horizontal when you hold them to when they can actually kind of hold on to your hip a little bit? That's a great day for a mother, isn't it? When they can actually do a little bit of something, they can hold on to your neck or they can wrap their little monkey legs around you and hold on. But the reality is they're not holding on to you. They couldn't hold on to you for more than 15 seconds. It is you who is holding them. And then there's a loud boom. There's a big crash, and what do they do? They squeeze down tighter than ever. And yet still it is you who is supporting them. It is you who is holding them. That this is the picture. That it's God who is holding you secure. And the moment that you let loose of this, all of a sudden things get real shaky real quick. The moment you believe that it is up to you to hold on to him, it is up to you to cling to him, almost as if he is running away and it's your job to find and seek him. Things get real shaky real quick, and this is not God's desire for us. And so as we turn to this morning's text and we see how this thing plays out, remembering that it's an incredible blessing from God to not only know his promises, but to know how he was accomplishing these promises. That's Paul's prayer. That's what we come to next. Paul's prayer is that we would understand what is the grounding for this hope that we have. That we would grow in our understanding of this great mystery of God's plans and his purposes and his will and how he's accomplishing all that he has promised. What he wants for you is to know this security. I read a text this week from a man 
not a text, but a, a text from a man this week that said that the saints who are in heaven, they may be happier than us, but they're in no way more secure. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? I'm jealous for those who have gone before because they're no longer living in a world surrounded by sin. They're no longer in bodies that are failing. They're no longer tempted by the enemy. But beloved, you need to understand that those loved ones you know that have gone before that are in the presence of Christ Jesus today, their salvation is not one ounce more secure than yours. Your eternal destiny is not one more ounce in doubt than theirs. So again, I say we see what an incredible blessing it is for God to show us how this works. He called it a lavish grace, making known to us, giving us this wisdom and insight that we would know what are his plans. And so he says here in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul is telling us here that something is happening. I tell you, something that is tied to his grasping tight to us his refusing to let us go, his causing us to endure to the end. What he says here is that it's a sealing, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But what does this mean? What does it mean to be sealed by the Spirit? Now, it can be confusing at times because as we read through the New Testament, we find the Holy Spirit doing a number of different things. We saw Jesus speaking in John 3 to a man called Nicodemus, saying that we must be born of the Spirit in order to see the kingdom of God. So we know that there's a work that must be done. There's a regeneration that must happen. We must be caused by God to be born again in order to turn and repent at faith and trust in him. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. But this isn't what he's speaking of. He's not speaking of being born of the Spirit. He's talking about being sealed. As we come towards the end of this letter, Ephesians 5, 18, we will find the Apostle Paul telling us that we should not that we should continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We've already got the Holy Spirit within us, and there's not more of the Spirit to give. And so this isn't the filling up like the scooping of a bucket into some water or, or topping us back off with the Holy Spirit as if we have diminished him in some way. I heard one man speak of it like the filling of wind in some sails. The wind is there. You raise your sails. They fill up, and they give you guidance and direction. So perhaps the filling of the Holy Spirit is to yield ourselves more and more over to his control and to his authority and to his guidance and to walking in holiness. But he's not talking here about being born of the Spirit. He's not talking here about being filled with the Spirit. He's talking about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. So there are three ways that this word sealed is used in that ancient language. One is as a means of security. A sealing is a means of security. Two is an identification of ownership. And three is a mark of authenticity. So in terms of a means of security, we see at the end of the book, Revelation 20, verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and sealed it and shut it over him. So there's a sealing that is happening there. It's a, it's a bounding up of something. It's a, it's a containing of something. In that same book, we see that there's a scroll there, and it has seven seals upon it. And John is weeping because he's asking, who is worthy to open the seal? 
We see another seal in Matthew 27. You'll remember that the, the religious leaders, they had gone to Pilate, and they said, Pilate, Jesus has claimed that in three days he will rise again from the grave, and we believe that his followers are going to do something. They're going to perhaps come in, they're going to steal his body. And so we're asking you to do something to make his, to- his tomb secure. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now this seems to have a very different picture. This would have been not something that was going to keep the boulder in place. The stone was not going to be held in place by the seal, but this was more of a mark to prove that no one had tampered with it. Perhaps this would have been a couple of pieces of wax with a string between it. I think about years ago, I had a, uh, had a small company, and we did, we did trucking. And a couple of times, I got in a truck, and I had to drive. And one of the things that we hauled was, was medicines. And some of those medicines were, they were drugs. They were controlled sub- substances, the kind of things that people would want to steal. And so you would take your truck to the place. They would load you up with the drugs, and they would put this little, little metal tab on the back of your truck. Now, I could easily break that tab with my hands, but the reality is once we arrived at the place, they would know that someone who was unauthorized, someone who had no business tampering with that thing, had broken the seal. There was someone who was authorized. They had the right, the power, the authority to break the seal, and only he could do it. I think that this is probably a picture of what we're seeing here. The second one, I told you, was an indication of ownership. You might think about the branding of cattle or something like that. I... I thought about Andy from Toy Story writing his name on the, on the bottom of, uh, who do you write it on, Woody or somebody? But, but this identification of ownership, we see this in Ezekiel 9, as God has said that he is going to take the life of all the idolaters, and he says, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Just a side note, as we work through this text and we talk about the sealing of the Holy Spirit, if we talk about enduring to the end, I want you to take note of how many times the Scripture uses the phrase groaning. That there is something right about the people of God groaning, knowing that this is not what it's supposed to be. This world is not what it was first created to be, and it is not what it yet will be. But he says, I want you to go through And I want you to put a mark on the foreheads of the men who have sighed and groaned at the abominations that were committed here. Verse 5. And to others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and and strike. Your eyes shall not spare, nor shall you show pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. So there is a seal of God that marks his ownership of certain people. And that as he distributes his justice, as he pours out his wrath, those who have the mark upon them, this isn't a mark to their own righteousness. This isn't their mark to their own worth. It is that they belong to him. This mark of ownership is what spares them. It's what separates them out and makes sure that they don't receive this same punishment. And I told you, number three, it was a mark of authenticity. But you think about your driver's license. There's that little shiny symbol down there in the corner. Or you think about a diploma. There's usually a raised stamp or a seal upon your diploma. That's how you know that it's real. Anybody can go get some card stock and print out a diploma for themselves. But until you have that seal upon it, marking that this thing is, uh, is authentic, this thing is not a forgery. We see this in Esther 8.8. 8. You remember that King Ahasuerus has told her that, look, you can now you can, you can issue, uh, issue out a commandment to all the people. You can make a proclamation to all the people. And he says, you may write as you please with regards to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. 
for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. So we see this picture of this king's signet ring, this stamp upon this letter that this proves this thing is authentic. It isn't a forgery. It isn't a fake. And the thing that has been sealed by the king's ring, it cannot be held back. It cannot be taken back. It cannot be overthrown. So I think that when we come to this picture of being sealed by the Holy Spirit, as you look back over the history of the church, men have argued about which one of these is it. Is it a statement of authenticity? Is it a thing that seals something in and protects it? Is it a statement of ownership? I think that we see them all in one way or another coming together in this. What's happening here is that God is sealing us up. That faith which is ours, that faith which we exercise, that by his spirit, he is sealing that up within us. Sealing the ability to fall away. The ability to lose that faith. The ability to wander away and fall short. He is sealing that out and he's sealing within us the repentant faith that we need to endure to the end. But then in addition to this, he is marking us out as belonging to him. He is separating us out from the world. He's saying, these are my saints. These are my holy one. I have marked upon them my name and they're mine so that we would be the ones who are spared when that day of judgment comes. Then lastly, authenticity. That we are truly his. That our faith is real. That we are not counterfeits. We are not those who are playing games. I think that we see all of these coming together. So the question then is, who does the sealing? Who is it that does the sealing? I told you that this is one of those texts that if you read 10 different men, you may find 10 different answers as to what's happening here. Many of my heroes of the faith, many of my preaching heroes, they believe that this sealing is something that is not done by God, but perhaps something that just happens within us as a result of our faith. But it seems clear to me that this is a work of God upon his people. As we look at 2 Corinthians 1, we read this. 2 Corinthians 1.21, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So it seems clear that it is God the Father, the one whom we have been focusing on, the one who has planned and purposed and all these things, that it is he who has sealed us. And what has he sealed us with? He has sealed us with his spirit. I think that the translation that we have in the ESV, it reads correctly. It says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, not by. This is not a work of the Spirit, although the Spirit is certainly involved. This is the work of the, Spirit, of the Father and giving us his Spirit, that that is a thing by which we are sealed. It's he himself that comes. Again, you will find some men that they understand this, and you all have to decide for yourself. I would encourage you to do that. Go study this text for yourself and determine what you think is this seal, what God is accomplishing. But there are some men, again, I tell you, some of my preaching heroes, men like Martin Lloyd-Jones, that believe that what he has done here is that God has come, and this is a secondary thing that comes after salvation. Now, truly, it says that it is when you have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed. But they believe that this might be years later, perhaps, that you have come and you have trusted and you have believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that the seal is an assurance of salvation that only comes later as you submit yourself more and more to God. That the seal isn't the Holy Spirit himself, but it's some work of the Holy Spirit in whispering this truth to you. Are you following me? But I don't think that this is the picture here. He says that it's the Holy Spirit himself that is our seal. Not some explicit work of the Holy Spirit, just the presence of the Holy Spirit within us that that is the seal. Let you decide for yourself what it means. But he makes very clearly that it is the Holy Spirit. Why is he called holy? 
Why is he called the Holy Spirit? There's some times when we'll hear God called the Holy Father. And certainly Christ Jesus is the Holy One. But why is he particular? In particular, within his name, called the Holy Spirit. Part of that comes from his purposes. That he is the one who has been sent by God to conform us into the image of his Holy Son. There's nothing that he's going to do that's not going to match up with his purposes that we would be a people that are holy and blameless before him. That part of the Holy Spirit's work is to come and remove that veil that remains over the eyes of men. Lifting up that veil so that we can see the glory of God in the face of his Holy Son. And then as the scripture tells us, from one stage of glory to another, we might be transformed. That that's much of his work in his revealing purposes that he gives us the eyes to see and the ears to hear, that we can behold the holiness of Christ, and as we see him, we become more and more like he is. He is the Holy Spirit, not just a force, not just a power, but a person, the third member of the Godhead. You'll notice that in Scripture he's referred to as he. You'll notice there's Scripture like Acts 5 that says that he can be lied to, Hebrews 3 that says he speaks, 1 Corinthians 2 that says he searches, Acts 15 says he judges. Ephesians 4 that tells us that he can be grieved. So we need to be very careful that we don't think that this is just some force or some power that God exerts in his people. That the one who comes to us, this one by whom we are sealed, he is a person, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. That just as the Son is eternally and infinitely God, this one who comes to us that seals us up, he too is eternally and infinitely God. All that you say of God, you say of the Spirit. The reason that this is important is because the minute we believe, we, we, we start to think that what God has given to us is just some power, is just some force. We can be tempted to believe that this then is a thing that can be manipulated to our own purposes. Or perhaps that this is a thing that we have the right to bestow or to take back from others must be reminded it is the same omnipotent sovereign God of the universe that he is the one who he has sent to seal you up the spirit of God dwelling in you that's why we read this morning's text from Ezekiel this was the promise that God would come and he would dwell in us by his spirit what did I pray earlier thanking God that as Jesus promised, he would not leave us as orphans. He would not forsake us. He would not send someone else to do this sealing work, but that he himself would come, that we would know him in an intimate and personal level, so close as one that is living within us. What did Jesus say in the high priestly prayer, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the true living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And how does he do this? By coming and living with us, not standing off at a distance and saying, climb this mountain and find me, not, not playing hide and seek where we've got to search the scriptures and trying to find something about him, that he himself comes and he dwells within us. Now, this seems to me to be the, be the experience of every single believer. That's why I take issue with these men that say that this is some type of a secondary experience. He says that when you believed, he doesn't make exceptions here. He doesn't say when some of you believed, when the more mature of you believed, when you believed and then you attained to this level of Christianity, says when you believed when you trusted in the gospel of jesus christ you were sealed with the promised holy spirit now there are certainly plenty of instances in scripture where we do see these outward manifestations of the coming of the holy spirit there was obvious purpose in this during the apostolic age it was an evidence that people who had previously been thought to be outside the kingdom of god people who they would have previously thought god would never come to dwell with these men by his spirit 
that when each of those people would receive the gospel, the truth, when they would believe on him, there would be this outward manifestation, this magnificent sign like speaking in tongues or the rushing of wind or something like that to make clear that they too have the Holy Spirit because the Spirit is invisible. This mark upon you cannot be seen with human eyes. And so to make clear that salvation was not just for the Jews, but that it was to the world through the Jewish people, to the Gentiles also, that it didn't stay in Jerusalem, didn't stay in Judea, didn't even stay in Samaria, but travels on to the ends of the earth. This was a gift from God. But Paul says in Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, I know of the Christian traditions. I know of the various denominations that believe that there is some secondary experience that we need to strive for. It's not a primary issue. It's not a thing. Perhaps some of you still struggle with some of those understandings. I believe very firmly that that is not the truth, but it's not an issue that we will allow you to work through that at your own time. I'll allow you to study the scriptures and see if that is the pattern that God has. seems very clear when he says that those who have the Spirit have Christ. You cannot have believed in Christ and not received the Spirit. But he says here that he's the promised Holy Spirit. He's not just holy. He's not just the one that's removing the veil that we ourselves might become more like Christ, but he's the one who's been promised. Again, going back to the text that David read, this was the great hope of the people, that the Spirit of God would come to dwell within them, that he would not just remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, that he would not just write his laws upon our heart, but that by the coming of his Spirit, we would become a holy people. He would empower and equip us to walk in this holiness. What torment would that be if God were to write his law upon your heart to give you the desire to do his law? to give you the desire to walk in holiness and never the power, never the ability, never the working by his spirit. This was the thing that the people longed for. And you remember that Jesus himself had made this promise. John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Beloved, I remind you that just as the saints who are in heaven today are no more secure in their salvation than we, I tell you that the apostles, the disciples, those first century Christians that walked with Jesus Christ were no more blessed than we. For to have Christ Jesus dwelling within you, he says, is an advantage, more so than him standing right next to you in the flesh. And we can over-romanticize this if we're not careful right well how much easier would it have been to follow Christ Jesus the Lord if I could have just seen him in the flesh if I could have just seen him heal the blind man if I could have just seen him feed the 5,000 if I could have just witnessed him walking on water then boy my faith would be unshakable I would believe until the very end have you met Peter and have you met Judas he said it's to your advantage while I'm here with you in the flesh in one place at one time, and very much I am the image of the invisible God, I will send one to you who will be a helper. He will illuminate your heart. He will guide you. He will teach you. He will from within you restrict your sin, your ability to fall away. He will equip you. He will gift you for the ministry. This is why Jesus told them, I'm going away. Now you go hide in a room for a bit. There's a mission that I've given you to accomplish and you are not equipped for that mission until I send this one and he cannot come until I depart. Why? Can Christ and the Holy Spirit not be in the same place at the same time? 
Clearly not. The Spirit was upon him. The Spirit was what empowered him for the mission that he accomplished here on earth. But it's because the work of the Holy Spirit is to come, to take that which Christ has accomplished and apply it to our lives. It wasn't until Christ Jesus died upon the cross, rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf, the Holy Spirit could then come and take that truth and apply it to us, that his job is to glorify the Son. So he says, it's to your advantage that I go away and I send this Spirit. And then we see as it happens, when the Holy Spirit came rushing upon the church at Pentecost, and what did Peter say? We're not drunk, and this isn't something new. This is what was promised through the prophet Joel, that he would send his spirit in the last days, that God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And we know that this was the longing of Moses. You remember that when there, there were men that were, they were going out and they were prophesying and they were doing work and, and, the, and the men came rushing to Moses and said, Moses, make these men stop. Make these men stop. This is your ministry. This isn't their ministry. These are only things that can be done by those who are in the spirit. Tell these men to stop in this work. And what did he say? Oh, that I long that the God would pour out his spirit on all his people. Does this mean that the Old Testament saints didn't have the spirit of God? Certainly not. But the spirit of God was illumining hearts, was opening eyes, was causing the new birth from the very beginning. Surely the Spirit of God was the one that was there working in men that they could walk in obedience. I want you to think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Did we see these things exhibited in the Old Testament saints? Surely. Surely, therefore, it was the work of the Holy Spirit upon them. And we see these particular times when the Spirit of God would come upon men for mighty purposes, and kings, and judges, and prophets, even the dudes that built the tabernacle, The first time we see the Holy Spirit coming upon a man in a tangible way that is written for us in Scripture, it's men that are going to do menial work in the building of a tabernacle. So surely the Spirit of God was at work in a magnificent way in the Old Testament saints. And yet there's something greater that was promised. The pouring out of his Spirit upon all flesh, upon all that are his, that we would be equipped and empowered and assured that we are his. That all men, having the Spirit of God dwelling within us, we would be sealed up for the day of redemption, that that's what he comes to do. Ephesians 4.30 warns us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. How do we know that we will make it to the day of redemption? How do we know that we will make it to that final moment? Because we've always got this already not yet tension working throughout scripture, especially here, right? You've got this, that you are already adopted as sons of God. We are already counted as children of God, and yet we await the day of adoption. We've already been redeemed by Christ Jesus, forgiven of our sins, and yet there's some future day of redemption. How do I know that I'm going to attain to that day? How do I know that I'm going to continue on? Again, he points to this, the work of the Holy Spirit within his people. So how can we know? How can we know if this mark is invisible, if it's not a sharpie written on the bottom of our foot, the name of God, if it's not some branding across our forehead, if it's not some stamp in wax upon our soul that we can look down and lay our eyes upon, how can I know that I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Because remember the purpose in all this was that we would have assurance that we were his and confidence that we'll make it to the end. How can we know then that this will be true? How can we know that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit? Now God does give us something and I'm going to read that text to you but before we go to that text I need to remind you that the ultimate basis for this is because he says so 
We've got to be very careful about becoming people that demand signs and wonders and pictures. Number one, because we're not owed any of that. But number two, because how easily are we deceived? How easily do we manufacture false signs and false wonders? How fickle are our emotions? Again, I told you there are men that say that this sealing of the Holy Spirit, it's this assurance that comes upon some men where they're just rock-solid confidence that they, confident that they are his. But isn't that a thing that comes and goes for most of us? Isn't that a thing that waxes and wanes throughout the years? And even our own experience in walking in holiness. I thought I'd be better than I was by now. Don't you feel the same? I mean, I knew I'd have good days and bad days. I knew there would be those moments when I really flourished and I, I just found myself just, I, I was just walking in obedience and doing things that there's no way I would have ever done apart from the work of God in me and my confidence would swell. And I knew I'd have bad days when I would stumble in sin or even purposefully sin, just look sin dead in the eye and say, I want that more than I want him and walk in this. But I thought the trajectory would always be kind of upward. I thought it would be like going to my grandma's house and you know she marks you on the door over the years and you don't notice your growth you don't notice your growth in the immediacy, but you come back in a, a year, six months, five years, whatever it is, and you notice I'm growing. And then you hit a point and you start shrinking, I guess. But dang, I thought I'd be further along by now. So I can't be looking to myself and my own performance. I can't be trusting my own emotions. There, there, I gotta be very careful about looking to things other than to his word and saying, what does his word say? And beloved, what his word says is, when you believed, you were sealed. So the ultimate way you can know is, you can trust his word that he says, when you heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed. You study the scripture and see what that sealing means and you rejoice. Even when your heart tells you, I don't get it. Even when your heart tells you, I don't feel like it. But we do praise God that he has given us something. Romans eight thirteen says this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. So again, I remind you, your primary tool, your primary goal is to see the word and then preach that word to yourself. There's days when you're gonna have to look at your heart in the mirror and say, heart, I don't trust you. I trust the word of God more than I trust you. And you preach to yourself the promises of God. You preach to yourself the word of God. But he said, There's, there is this thing that happens. You notice here he talks about putting to death the deeds of the body. There's this work by which the Holy Spirit is, is moving in you and he is causing you to hate the things that you once delighted in. Whenever we talk about the will and how the will is involved in this either turning to God or resisting God, even co either coming in faith or finding Christ to be a stench and running the other way, I'll often ask you about dogs. Why do dogs eat vomit? Because they're dogs. And that's their nature. Does anybody force a dog to eat vomit? No, you beg it not to. You maybe even spank it when it does it. 
Can you physically restrict a dog from eating? I'll stop saying that word. (laughs) Can you physically restrict the dog from eating its sick? Yes. But it's in the dog's nature to eat it. If the dog's going to stop eating that stuff, there's going to have to be a change in his nature. And can you imagine if there was that day when the dog walks by, he looks down at it and he goes, that's gross. Why would I ever want to eat that? That's an indication you're not dealing with the dog anymore. Beloved, that's us. There were things that we once would have run through barbed wire fences to get to to eat. And there's a day you wake up and you look at it and you go, that's gross. I hate this. We're putting to death the deeds of the body. He's saying that we're led by the Spirit. There's a leading. We find ourselves being drawn to do things, walking in obedience to things that we would have never otherwise known. We have never otherwise found attractive. It's not just resisting the yucky things. It's driving towards the greater things. It's the way in which we make our decisions. We come to these decisions in life, these forks in the road, and oftentimes one's not good and one's not evil. It's just, they just are, right? Do I, do I buy a new truck today? I got the money in the bank. I'm not going to go into debt to do it. I've worked hard. I'm not stolen the money. I'm giving faithfully to the church. Do I buy a new truck? What leads me in this decision? Am I seeking the Spirit of God? Am I seeking the Word of God? Am I being led by the Spirit? But then he says, in addition to this, that the Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit. So we cry, Abba, Father, that there's this intimacy within the children of God. That this is the work of the Holy Spirit that causes us to trust God as Father. But I want you to notice when he's crying out, Abba, Father. It's talking about during these times of suffering, provided we suffer with him. You see, I think some men, they think, you know what? The way that I'm going to know that I belong to Christ, the way that I'm going to have assurance that the Spirit is within me, is I'm going to go up on a mountain sometime, someplace, and I'm just going to sit and be a monk. Just me alone with my thoughts and the word, and then my assurance is surely going to grow. But what I see in Scripture seems to be the opposite. It's as you go and do stuff. It's as you stub your toe. It's as you run out of money. It's as people lie about you. It's when your marriage is on the rocks. It's when you're sick and your body is failing you. That those are the times when your assurance grows because those are the times when you feel within your soul this thing crying out, Abba, Father, I need you. Father, I need you. That he uses suffering as this gift of assurance that you are his. That he leads you through these things and and causes you to cry out to him, to trust in him, to lean deeper into him. I think this is the gift from God. And that there's going to be great turmoil within us. As we seek to put to death the deeds of the body, our body is going to revolt. Our flesh is going to revolt. I think there's men that think that unless they have this absolute sense of peace in their life where they're just walking along looking like you know, halos over their head like a saint in some kind of picture somewhere with no desire for sin, no desire for disobedience, just nothing but a peace-filled life from here to the gates of heaven, that that's what this picture of real assurance looks like. But, beloved, that's not it at all because your flesh won't die easy. Any of you that have ever walked with somebody that went through an organ transplant, you know that oftentimes the greatest danger to that person is the body rejecting it. Your own body attacking that thing that is there to save its soul, I mean save its life. As the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us, our flesh, it rises up. It resists. What does Paul talk about in Romans 7? What a wretched man that I am. I'm in this body of death, and it's revolting against the things that I want to do. And so that thing that might, 
might tempt you to believe that you are not his, that thing that might tempt you to believe that assurance can't be had, that thing that seeks to lead you away, that war that you feel waging within your soul, that very well may be the assurance that you're his. There's something now within you that your flesh doesn't like, that you're engaged in that war. Now Paul goes on to tell us, wow, look at the time. Paul goes on to tell us how this sealing works. He says that he's the promised Holy Spirit, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now the word there in Greek is erebon. It, it can mean a pledge. It can mean a down payment. It can mean a first installment. Now you think about in, those, in the ancient Near East, one of the things that men would do is if they were going to borrow something, if they were going to take something, if they were going to, if they were going to receive something and not yet pay for it, oftentimes they would leave their cloak or their staff or something like that as a pledge. They'd say, I'm going to take this, and when I return it, you will give me back that which is mine. That doesn't work here. Because this spirit by which we are sealed is not a thing that he is taking back. It's a thing that he has given us. It will dwell within us for all time. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 3. For while we were still in this tent, I want you to see the encouragement that comes from this. For while we were still in this tent, we groaned, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. That whatever this, this sealing of the Holy Spirit, whatever this experience may feel like in this lifetime, however you may become aware of this, even if it's just looking to the scriptures and trusting that this is meant to be a thing that builds in us courage, this down payment, this first installment, these first fruits that we have received. It's a promise from God for more to come. I think down payment works well. What is a down payment? It shows that you're serious about something. Whenever you go to buy a house, oftentimes before you even get to the down payment, what do you give them? You give them earnest money. What's the purpose of the earnest money? So show, I'm serious about this thing. Then as you give the down payment, it's the promise, there's going to be more to come like this. There's going to be more to come to secure this thing that I've entered into. That we've been given the Spirit of God, not just as a seal upon our souls, but a guarantee that he's going to finish the purchase. That he's going to make good on his promises. He's pointing forward to some full ex fuller experience to come. Going back to Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There's that groaning again, right? Over and over and over again. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. For not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I think first fruits work. What are first fruits? It's whenever those first fruits, that first little bit of the harvest comes up and the men, they will go. And, and let's say you're harvesting grapes. You go and you take those first grapes off of it and you taste them and you realize these are sweet. These are good. What does this foretell you is coming? A good harvest of sweet and good grapes. That while the harvest is greater, it is more abundant. It is not going to be altogether dissimilar or something unlike the thing that was first given. That foretaste is a bit of the whole. Are you tracking? So it's a thing that we have received in the Holy Spirit, not only as a seal, but as a guarantee. He's not just a placeholder for something different that we'll later receive. He is a taste of the same thing that we will receive. Again, I say not that we need more of God, but he's going to enhance our capacities to receive and to believe and to be changed and to understand and to know God. Are you tracking? 
So he says he's the guarantee of our inheritance. Not only the seal, he's the guarantee of this thing that has been promised to us. This inheritance that's being kept in heaven for us today. We know that we shall receive it because he has given us his spirit as a foretaste. As a guarantee. Remember I told you that inheritance, it isn't something outside of God. It's God giving us himself. That this is eternal life. Giving us a down payment, a guarantee now. And now he tells us the purpose. What is the purpose of this sealing? It says until we acquire possession of it. Now, this is one of those few times when I wonder if the ESV translation is the best way to put this. Until we acquire possession of it would make us think that this means that he has given us this inheritance or he's given us this down payment as a foretaste of our inheritance and we hold on to that foretaste, we hold on to that down payment until we require possession of the whole, of the inheritance. But a more literal translation is until the redemption of the possession. If you read in the NIV, it says, until the redemption of those who are God's possession. What's the purpose of the sealing? Does it guarantee our inheritance? Yes, it says it right here. But what is it pointing us towards? What is the purpose of the sealing? It's till God comes and takes possession of those who are his. You remember when we were first considering this word inheritance in verse 11, I told you that there's a sense in which, yes, God is our inheritance. He is our portion. But there's another sense in which we are his portion. That we are his heritage. And so we see both of those coming together right here in this verse. When he's saying that God has given us his spirit as a guarantee that we will receive him as our inheritance. Him dwelling within us today is an assurance that we will dwell with him in eternity tomorrow. But at the same time, the purpose of the sealing is that he would carry us on into eternity until that day when he comes and receives us to himself. That redemption which has been secured in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins, until he comes and redeems us once and for all. As Paul said in Romans 8, that of our bodies, the redemption of our bodies. Our spirits are, spirit is continually being molded. Our souls are continually being molded into the image of Christ Jesus. Our bodies are continually slipping into decay. Our bodies are failing and we are groaning. Our bodies are rebelling and we are groaning. There's a promise that because of this ceiling, he will come back and he will secure us as his own, taking that to himself that he has purchased by the blood of his son. Got to move quickly now but acts 20 28 pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the holy spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of god which he has obtained by his own blood beloved how many times have i told you that you have been purchased at the highest price ever imaginable god will not forsake that which he has purchased by the blood of his son first peter 2 8 they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He's coming back. He's coming back to take that which is his. He's coming back to take that which he has purchased by his son. And he says that he does it all to the praise of his glory. That's his purpose. And his planning and his accomplishing and his applying of redemption to his people His purpose is that we would be a people who do all that we do to the praise of his glory. And I want you to see the way God's name is tied to your salvation. How can we know that he will finish this work? Not just because of this guarantee that he has given you. Not just because of this seal that he has placed upon you. But because it is tied to the glory of his own name. Isn't that what he said to Israel? I will redeem you not for your sake, but for the sake of my name. 
that whenever I stand before you and I tell you that there's nothing that God is more passionate about, there's nothing God is more jealous for, there's nothing God is more zealous about than the glory of his own name. And then I look you in the eye and I tell you with complete sincerity and that's to your good. It's because he has attached his name to you. He has attached his glory to the coming back and acquiring that which is his possession. He will not fail. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for this day that you have given us. We counted a gift from you. We thank you, Father, for this people that you are building. We thank you, Father, that by your spirit you have sealed us up, that even as Christ Jesus now in the heavenly places and interceding on our behalf at your right hand, we thank you, Father, that the spirit has come to indwell us, to seal us, to secure us, to assure us that we are yours so that we don't have to wonder if we have fallen away. We don't have to wonder if you have abandoned your plan. That, Father, as we find our hearts crying out to you, Abba, Father, if we find ourselves hating that which we once loved and loving that that we once hated, we can live with absolute assurance that we are yours and that we will continue to the end. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.